should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Happy first day of November. I woke up this morning and uh, I felt so refreshed. Felt so excited and so positive because in 24 days, it'll be Thanksgiving. <laughs> Thanksgiving is one of my favorite holidays. There's no pressure to do anything other than eat and or be with your family, although I know it's controversial in terms of how the holiday started and whatnot. But what I do appreciate about Thanksgiving is it does bring families together, um, and uh, it's, a, it's a time in which, sure, I do my own reflection, and I think about the things that I'm thankful for. Although this year has been somewhat of a crappy year. <laughs> I blame the election, though. The election is driving people crazy and people are making bad decisions and, and hurting other people and saying things that they shouldn't say uh, because of this election. I, I, I truly, truly believe that. I dressed up as Hillary Clinton, by the way, uh, for Halloween, uh, and I normally do not even dress up at all. But it was a very impromptu um, costume. I, I just happened to have access to a pantsuit. And uh, my sister bought this costume for Sue Sylvester. She bought it for me off of a woman selling it uh, in her garage, by the way. We were in Stockton, uh, which is 80 miles east of San Francisco, a very suburban town for those who don't live in California. And, it, and, the, and, and she, the reason why she bought this costume was because it... Um, <laughs> Because it's Sue Sylvester from Glee, and she's a lesbian, I'm a lesbian, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the wig looked great as Hillary Clinton, so I went as Hillary Clinton. And the amount of comments that I got was just crazy. I mean, people were so affected by my costume. I'm in a town in which there are, you know, posters that say Democrats for Trump that spread out throughout the entire town. And uh, people are so angry about her emails, um... So I do hope that if you're tuning in today, go and change the passwords to your emails because uh, I'm sure of it, you know, anybody who has access to them and wants to read them will be offended by something. And I know it's not really that simple, but let's get today's show started. It's, it's easier to talk about other things than my life. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our guest today is my good friend, Melanie Nathan, who's the executive director of African HRC. She's worked, uh, you know, I, I don't really need to do a thorough introduction because I feel like she's been on the show so many times, but she does a whole lot of work with those applying for asylum who live in countries uh, that they face persecution for being LGBTQ. But we're bringing her on this morning to talk about something different. We're talking about an issue that affects us here in the United States. Uh, there is a nonprofit organization that's supposed to be like the capital organization of all LGBTQ things, and that's the Human Rights 
campaign. And uh, so there's some controversy that happened over the weekend. Let's talk about it with Melanie. Mel, welcome to the program. Thanks, Michelle. Nice to hear your voice. How are you? I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging in there. I'm counting down the days um, you know, until November 8th. And uh, so let's talk about HRC. So HRC, you know, has been this nonprofit organization. Um, I, I call it the powerhouse. It's like the the, CE, the the grand corporation of all things gay. Is that a good way to explain it? Yeah, I would say that they are considered amongst many as the preeminent LGBT organization in the United States of America. They have a huge membership. I think over a million people um, are their members, and members pay money to be members. And so they are really big. They have a big voice, definitely, certainly on the Hill. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a couple of the things that they do do is they put out uh, an index um, rating uh, corporations for their LGBTQ policies or workplace policies. And then they also rate, you know, politicians, and they've been doing some endorsements, uh, especially now that, you know, it's become much more accept there's a uh, people are much more accepting of lgbtq rights and issues but um one endorsement that they did make this past year was of republican senator mark kirk of illinois uh which was a surprise to many of us in the lgbtq community as we oftentimes will endorse democratic candidates yeah so hrc definitely touts itself as um a, a, a bipartisan organization And so they do keep a congressional scorecard. They had scored Mark Kirk, Senator Mark Kirk, the incumbent who's running for the Senate against Tammy Duckworth, who is a Democrat and is currently a congresswoman. And they had scored Mark Kirk at 78% on their scorecard, and they had scored Tammy Duckworth at 100%. And their reasoning for uh, endorsing Kirk over Duckworth was because they felt that they had somebody who had a strong record on our behalf, that he had supported the Equality Act, and that he would therefore be a good ally to have in Congress, in the Senate, and they felt that someone like him could bring other Republicans to the table to vote for us on LGBT issues. But what I think, and many other um, LGBT pundits and activists and uh, advocates who are terribly aggrieved by this endorsement, what we believe is that what's the point of having an ally in the context of what is going on right now mm-hmm. where we could actually win the majority in, in that chamber? We could win the majority in the Senate. Why even risk it's by losing it by one seat because none of those bills would become even near to a vote without a democratic um, majority. So we feel that while it might be good in the bigger scheme of things to endorse Republicans who are allies and who have such great scores, in this particular instance, it was a terrible lapse in judgment. Absolutely. I, I, I agree as well. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of people agree. And uh, we agreed to the point where it uh, HRC reversed their endorsement of Mark Kirk um, this yeah. past weekend after he made a, a, a some racist comment. Let's talk about that comment. Yeah. Yeah. So here's the thing. Um, you know, let me just say this. 
since their endorsement of Kirk, which was in March of this year, many of us have written articles, we've corresponded with them, uh, they have not responded to many of us, and we have specifically asked that they um, revoke that endorsement. And many of us were ignored, and they never revoked the endorsement, and they dug their heels in right up until this week, 10 days before the um this was uh, 10 days before the election. Uh, Mark Kirk was in a, the second debate with Tammy Duckworth, and he flagrantly insulted her and every American immigrant and certainly every American Asian immigrant or who has an immigrant legacy with the following remark. He said, I forgot. He interrupted her and said, oh, I forgot that your parents came all the way from Thailand to serve George Washington. Oh. Well, Duckworth is an Iraq war veteran. She served as a U.S. Army helicopter pilot. She suffered severe combat wounds, losing both her legs, damaging her right arm. She was the first female double amputee in the war. She's got a 100% score with us. Her, she's got, she's no, her, her entire family has served the nation in uniform since the revolution. And for him to make a remark like that was so disgusting. So he... Um, HRC should have pulled out the minute they heard it. I think it took about 48 hours and a lot of us writing articles and saying, when are you going to withdraw? When are you going to withdraw this endorsement? You know, we were surprised that they didn't withdraw the endorsement when Trump was a presumptive nominee and then when Trump became the actual nominee. Because in essence, this is such an unusual situation with a Trump presidential candidate. Trump has is going to, if he is ever president, would reverse all the rights or try to reverse all the rights that LGBTI people have. And there you have a presidential candidate who serves the down ticket on ballots. So Mark Kirk would then be that down ticket that a guy like Trump was serving. And so, you know, on so many levels, HRC should have, A, not endorsed in the first place, B, uh, revoked its endorsement when Trump was the nominee, and C certainly got a lot, come a lot quicker to the table to revoke the endorsement after this horrible mm -hmm. racist slash bigoted comment uh, by Kirk. Mm -hmm. But then they did, they did a, a couple of days ago. They came out and they said that under no circumstances can we um, continue because of this racism. But they still try to justify. Um, right. their prior endorsement, which doesn't bode well for a lot of us who see it as a terrible lapse in judgment. Right. Lapse in judgment or what's really going on here? I mean, let's talk about this. I, I hmm. see it as, you know, pandering to a more conservative, more, uh, I guess, uh, what you would call it, a, 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 a maybe even a, a moderate voter, if that, in that hmm. if you're looking at dollars and cents, it makes sense to try to appeal to this group who, you know, tend to be white, tend to be uh, more conservative. Um, yep. That's kind of where my head was going when they made this endorsement, that it wasn't necessarily, you know, continuing on this path of what we traditionally do in supporting progressive candidates, but trying to come right. off as if they can be nonpartisan or bipartisan or uh, in, mm. in some way. Yeah, so that's definitely the case. I think that they may, you know, there are other ways 
to support bipartisanship, but not the big chamber, the Senate. You can support it in, 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 in state senates in a way that it balances out well. There are other ways to please your donors. You know, as some uh, writers such as Daily Costas, David Nair, interpreted the endorsement as a cynical ploy to draw in more Republican donors. I wondered... Um, in a similar vein, you know, and and then they have to juggle this idea of being bipartisan. And I understand that. And it is good on many levels to be bipartisan because let's face facts, like it or not, even in our LGBT community, we have a lot of Republicans or a decent amount of Republicans, as crazy as that may seem to some of us. And yet we still have to respect those people when and the choices they make. It's their freedom to make whatever choice they want. But there is no excuse and, and no justification for doing what they did in the instance of Kirk, given the current context and the current climate, unless they are pandering, and unless there is some other kind of cynical reason for doing what they did. And I don't know if we will ever find that out. And what's interesting about HRC is they have a robust, prominent board of directors who apparently, according to um, their website, also help to make policy and make decisions like this. And when I look down at all those names of those board members, and I think to myself, are these is this a board that just nods its head to the president, Chad Griffin, and what he wants? Or is this a board that actually argues and discusses this stuff? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I would like to know who on that board, one by one, agreed in the first place with this endorsement and why I'm so angry about it. Uh, for, is A, the risk that they were willing to take with our rights, I find possibility of conflicts of interest, and thirdly, the divisiveness that it caused in our community because it was such a prominent endorsement. Michelle Miel, we're speaking with Melanie Nathan, who's the executive director of African HRC and also the editor and blogger of Oblog D, Oblog Da, um, and uh, blogs about all kinds of LGBTQ issues. And so we're talking about uh, this issue, HRC, who had once endorsed Senator Mark Kirk, who's a Republican, uh, running for again, he's 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 an incumbent. He's running again for his seat uh, out of Illinois, and running against uh, T- Tammy Duckworth, who is um, a, a Democrat who actually has scored 100 percent on HRC's own index uh, versus Mark's, I think, 70 something uh, points. But what we're talking about is this endorsement and why it doesn't make any sense. We're discussing why it could be a lapse in judgment and or this very, you know, (laughs) I call it ugly, (laughs) ugly play at trying to appear as if uh, this this organization can also support conservative candidates. Now, you know, Mel, people like Peter Thiel, for example, had just made public comments that kind of always blame the liberal left and or the progressives for throwing up our hands at everything that is different than what we believe in. And so, for example, Mm -hmm. because Peter Thiel is a Republican, he's supporting Donald Trump for president. You know, we're 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 shunning him from our community because, uh, you know, he he's he has a different opinion about who should be president of the United States. Have we as a community, the LGBTQ community, become, in Peter Thiel's words, intolerant? It always amuses me. I've been seeing this a lot on social media where the truly intolerant blame the tolerant for being intolerant. I mean, how do you figure that out? <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
I mean, how much more tolerant can you be than to support minorities who are outcasts or who are the other in the main scheme of things, you know? So, you know, to say when we fight for our rights, our very basic rights, such as marriage, um, when we are denied those rights and we fight viciously for them, which we're entitled to do, all we want is equality, then we're called intolerant. So when you have a bloke like Trump who has overtly said, I will take choice away from women, and he has overtly said, I will take uh, uh, same-gender marriage away from same-sex uh, couples or from LGBT people, damn right, I'm happy to be called intolerant if I'm not going to tolerate that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's, it's very simple. <laughs> very, very well said, um, you know, because that's uh, – I oftentimes find that when, when somebody, you know, who wants to talk to me about moderate to conservative political candidates who can represent for us, I it's not that I don't think that LGBTQ people sh- can't be fiscally and or politically conservative. I, I just think that we need to be mindful of who we call an ally before we call them an ally. I mean, at this point, yeah. it's ridiculous to even consider Donald Trump an <laughs> I can't even say that. I had to stop at ass. I mean, ally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he's definitely not an ally. I mean, you know, let's face facts. And this is how I look at it. If you are going to take the basic precepts of what drives people in their lives, the right to be with the person you love, um, the right to file taxes with the person that you're married to. I mean, all those kind of things. To my way of thinking, it's an all-encompassing issue because it impacts every aspect of our lives. So I have a hard time thinking, I'm going to, you know, how can someone vote for someone just because they share their fiscally conservative ideals when at the same time you're voting against your own ability to actually share in how that really works in real life. Right. You know, it kind of cancels it out. It doesn't make sense to me. So So we are in a very unique position as LGBT people. We are. I'm going to wrap up here and I got one more question for you before I let you go. And just going back to the whole HRC situation with their, you know, taking back their endorsement of Mark Kirk, which was wrong to begin with. And they knew that. I know they know that they had their own index up there to tell them that Um, (laughs) or or report card, I should say. Uh, You know, where do we go from here? I think I think that what we are doing is we're doing a good job in holding LGBTQ leaders accountable for you know, making the wrong decisions that don't necessarily represent our lives. Um, but, you know, what do you think? Do, could we be doing more? Should we be doing more? Keep it up. Yes, we should be doing a lot more because, I, you know, I see a core small group of activists who are sort of holding the, the feet to the fire on stuff like this. And our general, and I don't mean this to sound too bad, but our general LGBT community shouldn't just write that $30 membership check or that uh, $50 donation without knowing who, what, how, and when. You know, we all need to stop just trusting everything around us and really read and look at all the stuff and, um, you know, open your eyes and don't think that the guy sitting with the most money at the top of some ladder 
is the guy that is really going to absolutely serve your needs. And, you know, I know there's no time to discuss this, but another example with HRC was the whole debacle with the Employment Non-Discrimination Act. Um, you know, people can Google and see all that goes on with, went on with that. The bottom line is just, you know, open your eyes, get involved, and be, a, be accountable for where you put your money and your membership and write your checks. It is that that will impact these people when you all open your mouths and say, hey, you know what? You represent me. This doesn't suit me. Thank you so much, Mel. And uh, to support Melanie's work, you could also go to oblogd, oblogda, and it's spelled, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a fun word. So, Mel... <laughs> You want me to spell it quickly? Yeah. O B L O G. So it's O B L O G D E E O B L O G D A. You can tell it was never meant for marketing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, and of course we'll have you back on as always because you do such incredible work. Don't go away. When we come back, the show continues with another great interview discussing income inequality and also class privilege in the LGBTQ community. Don't go away. You're listening to the Progressive Voices Channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Hey, it's Michelle Miao. It's hard these days not to get a question about when I'm getting married or when I'm having kids. I get it. Marriage equality is legal now. I'm in my 30s and in a committed relationship. Marriage may not have a time limit, but what about having kids? I have a lot I want to accomplish before growing my family, like becoming the next Oprah. If I want to wait, what are my options? Join myself and our partner Pacific Fertility Center for a free seminar on egg freezing November 3rd from 6 to 8 p.m. Register at PacificFertilityCenter.com. Space is limited, so register now. That's PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. 
Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here on the first day of November. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm just so tired of 2016. I'm just ready for this year to just, you know, pass by me like a sail. No, no, not a sail. A speedboat. Screw that. You know? And then and it, I want to watch it. No, I don't want to watch it. I want to wash it away by drinking like a glass of wine or something. But like a nice glass of wine. A crisp glass of wine. That's what I want to do. That's 2016. Anyway, thanks so much again for joining me. I, I loved our discussion about HRC and just kind of pointing the obvious of this, you know, pandering to a conservative base and which uh, the organization did make, in my opinion, a very careless endorsement, a, a very wrong endorsement of a political candidate that's not even right for the queer community. So I'm kind of excited about our second half because now I'm kind of feeling like I'm going to go from way up there in talking about it in this very diplomatic way and talking about privilege in our community and bring it down to a level where I feel like I can be a, a little bit more real, if you will. Yes, let's just be real. I wish I was drunk for this conversation because I would say so much more that's on my mind. But at the same time, I, I kind of don't want to offend anyone. Um, I think my next guest has a better way of articulating what it is that some of us in the community have been feeling. Um, so I'd like to, I'm very honored, I'd like to introduce you to Shakar Mujukian, who is here with us on the program to talk about his article, The Queer Poor Aesthetic. Shakar, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. Um, so this, this, uh, this article that I came across, actually a friend had sent this to me and it came during a time in which, you know, I'm walking in, in San Francisco, uh, downtown San Francisco. And I was like, why does, why, why, did, why, why are my friends walking around, um, uh, and, and spending so much money to look so poor? Uh, <laughs> there's something behind that. I mean, you know, here in San Francisco, people pay a hundred dollars for shoes that, that, that don't look like they're a hundred dollars or, or, or shirts. Um, so I appreciate your article, but there's something there that's much more in depth than just what's, uh, you know, what you see, right. That there are people here who, well, you put it best. You said my wealthier friends own everything, but their class privilege. Let's talk about that. Okay. Uh, so, um, I had the privilege of going to university and I made that very clear in my article, um, just to kind of, I guess, practice what it is I'm critiquing and saying, or, yeah, uh, not practice what I'm critiquing. Um, but, yeah, I think that, like, I don't know, being in an academic setting that's, like, very particular, like, um, I don't know, academic spaces can be very, like, um, not friendly to people like me. Uh, in the sense that, like, I don't see people who look like me um, and share my politics. So the the spaces uh, that have those politics and, um, you know, spaces that I see people who look like me, those are important to my survival. So I need those spaces. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in them I see that, like, you know, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's just like... Uh, a kind of like a contradiction to our politics, basically. Sure. That, um, it's, yeah, yeah. It's something that I kind of like saw on a daily basis because I got to live in like three different cooperatives. Mm -hmm. So uh, like every day it was just like uh, class privilege was kind of in my face. But 
um, it like nobody talked about it. We only talked about it uh, in the theoretical sense, um, in in a safe sense, and like uh, kind of like in a classroom or something like that. Or um, yeah, we talked about class in the sense of capitalism, but we never talked. We never treated it as an identity that mattered. Um, and I could see that from my interpersonal interpersonal interactions between my friends uh, and also the people that we glorify in our community. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that word, glorifying and or glamorizing or appropriation, it seems mm-hmm. to be this, um, you know, something that, that has been ongoing that I, I don't know if I'm like afraid to call it out or I just don't know how to like talk about it without offending someone. Or that person uh, is obviously offending me, and and then now I'm silenced because I too grew up poor, uh, mm-hmm. and and that is an ongoing, um, you know, it's a feeling, yeah. it's a it's a it's a it's also an identity of mine. Mm-hmm. So when I do end up meeting, uh, especially with a lot of progressives here in San Francisco, who then you know. Uh, stand on a podium somewhere shouting Mm -hmm. out things like calling out uh you know privilege or you know screw the techies or like you know all this stuff and it's like wait a second don't you work for linkedin and make like six figures yourself because here's the danger and why we're talking about this on the show because the danger in that is that obviously when you have that person saying things like that who don't even come from say a poor community and or marginalized on top of that you you then are creating a divisive environment which takes away the resources or the opportunities from someone who is actually impacted. So someone who's poor, someone who's of color. Those are my feelings. That's why I feel very strong about your article. Um, and so am I, am I wrong to, to be in this position? No, I think, like, so it took me a year to write that article. Like, the first time I wrote it, I wrote 20 pages. The second time I wrote it, I wrote 18 pages, and, like, none of it was framed in a personal way. Um, it was, sorry, I'm walking up a hill. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're, you're, yeah. you're, you're, at, you're exercising your privilege yeah, right now. Yeah, exercising, I'm exercising my privilege by walking up a hill in San Francisco. Right. <laughs> uh, from which I'm moving because I can't afford. But, yeah, um, yeah tomorrow. But, um yeah. Uh, sorry, what were we saying? So what we're talking about is, I mean, especially because you, you identify as trans and what's going on right now in terms of the trans community, for example, is there's a lot of conversation about how resources are not necessarily funneling to the transgender community from an LGBTQ community perspective. You know, a lot of those dollars like we, we are raising for something like HRC, like, you know, all these big mm. uh, organizations end up going to something else but yet we find that these organizations will take an opportunity in my opinion to either appropriate or co-opt say you know a transgender person the working issues. class struggle yeah to, to to raise money and 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 all that stuff as if you know that the entire organization is faced with that strife and or you know that misfortune um, so I think you hit something that is is kind of top of mind for a lot of us, which yeah. is you can't do that. Like you can't. That's not fair to do because it obviously it's not it's not making the issues that we have better. It's not helping us. Mm-hmm. I think I think uh, I remembered what you were talking about before. Sorry, but um, 
sorry. I'm also really bad at uh, speaking, but I'm way better at writing. So. <laughs> no, that's funny because I hate writing, um, but I like talking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get like I get like tongue tied, and then you know I have a trouble memory or uh, with memory. But um, yeah, I think it just it just kind of uh, first it kind of just shows that okay, like let's just talk about class first and why I feel like it was like one of the like the like most prominent identities that have just been recently, like, you know, brought back or, like, into discussion, you know, because uh, it's different. It's different from the other identities that we've been talking about. So it makes it a lot harder to talk about and, like, a lot more sticky, and you don't know if you're going to offend somebody because um, because of, like, the particularities that go into class. Like, you can't see class, whereas you can see race, you know? Like, mm. um, you can... Uh, no one necessarily knows uh like it's not visible class is not necessarily a visible identity in some cases it it, it is but like therefore it makes it easy to appropriate but um and it's like also one of those things that are so personal you know to to families like you know even in between families you don't even want to talk about it you know so Mm -hmm. it that's uh like at least on a personal level that's that's what kind of makes it hard to talk about but it also like kind of like this rejection of privilege because it's easy because it's invisible that it kind of just shows the way that we view identity politics in our community and like either you're it's like a very binary way either you're um totally marginalized or uh, or you're totally not you know either you're the oppressor or the, or the you're oppressed mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and it's hard for people to admit that like they have this immense privilege you know, and, and, and uh, especially uh, not everybody, but the people who talk about identity politics and oppression and, like, not claim they're oppressed. Of course, they're oppressed, but, like, yeah. So it, it kind of, like, rather than, like, viewing us as, like, three-dimensional human beings that all, like, interact with this, like, system, you know, in different ways and benefit from it and don't, like, you know, we're seeing us as, like, two-dimensional people. Mm-hmm. So it kind of like takes the nuance out of like living as well. Right. Right. Absolutely. And uh, that's that's the other thing. I, I mean, I appreciate so much about your article is, again, touching on some a subject that is so hard to have a conversation mm-hmm. with, especially when those are your friends. Um, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so it's like, say, for example, you're here's here's a line I want to take from your article. Um, you know, wealthy students try hard to look unemployable yeah Uh, let's 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 touch on that really quick like what does that even look like oh god so like uh that's like something that i feel that i encounter almost every day which is like okay so when you're poor you don't try to look poor you know what i mean you you do the exact opposite like everything that you do it's like you try really hard to be wealthy to feel wealthy because that's the only way that you can feel human you know so it's it's like poor people don't try to look poor so i saw like at i went to uc davis and i saw like um all of these people who came from a completely different background than me um just go like way way out of their way to like you know kind of like perform this identity you know that that ended up kind of fucking them over 
or screwing them over, you know. Um, it's like, um, because, you know, you kind of have to, like, abide by certain respectability politics, especially if you want a job, and you need a job in most cases to survive. So I would see people who are, like, you know, like, fresh bodies, like, right out of high school, like, you know, who haven't really, like, not necessarily, like, they haven't lived their life yet, but, like, you know, it seems like their lives have been, like, relatively, like, easy mm -hmm. and and uh, fresh, you know, and then they come, they come into college and they come into these spaces and they're like, oh, cool, like, I could do whatever I want or, like, I could finally express myself and mm -hmm. live all the, live, live all of the, experiences that I never got to experience in high school so like they you know like get stick and poke tattoos like really ugly stick and poke tattoos and like really like terrible visible places and like you know start getting piercings uh wearing like tattered clothing and things like that just uh you know and that doesn't make sense to me but Right, right. Well, you know what? I'm, uh, I, I love where this conversation is going. I'm going to take a quick break. But when we come back, I want to wind down our conversation and ask you a couple questions about just you yourself, because I think that that is going to help some of our listeners kind of define how they also feel about this type of situation. So stay with mm -hmm. us. Hi, I'm Chuck Spence. I'm the owner of the Maui Sunseeker LGBT Resort, and I'm also vice president of Maui Pride. It's not just the only LGBT resort in Maui, it's the only LGBT resort in all of Hawaii, which is really kind of amazing. Maui Sunseeker actually started years and years before I even got involved. I came along as one of the owners a little bit later in, in life. I came to Maui back in 1978 and absolutely loved the island. I fell in love and I thought, this is where I want to live, this is where I want to be. And so from 1978 until 2008, I finally came alive with the dream and bought the Maui Sunseeker because I realized that this would be the next step in my life and um, thought that this would be an ideal situation because I could do something that, that was my own business rather than making money for other people. It's important to have a place where, you know, you can feel comfortable about yourself, you can feel loved, and you can feel welcomed by everybody. And I think that that's the ambiance that we try to create. And, and that's the message that, that we try to deliver in all of our ads and trying to bring people to Maui, is that, you know, we're not just an experience on Maui, we're an experience of Maui. When you think back years ago, how closeted we used to be, and you think about how suppressed we were back then to how open and accepting we are now. And, and it's, it's a good progression for society. It's good that people are, are not just you know, tolerating, but appreciating diversity. And that's the message, is that we really need to make sure that, that people appreciate diversity. I think that whoever you are, follow your passion. Follow what you believe in. Follow whether it leads you down the path of art or whether it leads you down a path of business or you know, some other aspect of internet creativity. Um, follow that and, and just be passionate about what you do.
Spotlight on Success and Achievement is brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here on the program. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. Our guest today on the phone is writer and activist Shakar Majukian, and we're talking about his article, The Queer Poor Aesthetic. And uh, I had a great time reading this article as it taught me something that I had been thinking about but was not able to articulate or pinpoint, but that there is a problem when you make poverty as if it is a glamorous thing. And that that happens within our community, and I just don't think that we're calling attention to it enough. Shakar, you still with us? Yes. All right. So let's talk about kind of your own, you know, personal, I guess, uh, experiences. Uh, I mean, the whole article talks, it gives some great examples of, of even in your academic space, how how that has impacted you. But we had we had kind of glazed over your own identity, and I think it's really important to the listeners to know, you know, what things uh, or uh, your your identity and your experiences of who you are, and why these things trigger people like you and me and and create such a negative environment for us. Yeah, um, I kind of avoided writing about myself as much as I could in the article. Um, just. Um, just as much to, like, talk on my point. But, um, yeah, because uh, I guess I didn't, like, want to take up space, you know, and talk about myself. But, um, yeah, so uh, I'm from Pasadena, California, which is in Southern California, I guess in L.A. County. Um, I'm Armenian-American, transgender, and queer, um, which are kind of, like, together a bunch of impossible identities uh, still living together. Um, yeah, so I grew up in Pasadena, and I grew up in um, a pretty disenfranchised community. Um, yeah, I went to uh, not the best public schools growing up. Um, I, there were no white people in my classes or in, at, in my schools, uh, in my school. But, yeah, um, it's like, I don't know, there's like, it's hard to be, like, uh, it's, it's like I feel like certain certain identities that you have kind of perpetuate poverty because, like, you know, my, um, my parents both came to Los Angeles from Armenia uh, in their 30s. Um, mm-hmm. And my mom is 60 now, and, you know, um, she experiences a lot of discrimination because she can't speak English. And, uh, you know, as, like, a 60-year-old uh, woman of color, she can't who doesn't speak English, you know, she's having, uh, like, impossible fi- uh, impossible time finding a job. So that's, like, something that we have to, we have to experience along with her. But, um, so there's, like, my, my parents, like, they, they're not skilled laborers. Like, they never went to college. Like, they don't, they're not, you know, they're not doctors, they're not nurses, anything like that. But, um, uh, my mother, for a few years, she was working at a really sketch place in Pasadena that was like, um, she manufactured jewelry for a lot of big companies. Um, she was underpaid and exploited, and there was like a lot of surveillance going on there, and 
um, just like the, the space that she worked at was um, unidentified, basically. Like, it didn't have a name. It was, like, inside of, like, an auto shop, and her employer told her to, um, like, not tell anyone where she actually worked or the location of it or anything like that. So, um, yeah, so it's like when you when you grow up with things like that, like, I don't know, my family, um, I'm, I'm sure with all, many families, even wealthy families or uh, middle-class or upper-middle-class families, uh, money is a huge issue. Um, but for our family, it's like money is very divisive. Like money is like what starts fights. And, yeah. you know, like uh, money is what causes depression and high blood pressure and like all of these things that we now have to deal with because, you know, we're worried about like how are we going to pay pay our mortgage, uh, you know, and we're still blessed that we have a house. Um, my father passed away um, 10 years ago. And uh, like after that, you know, things have been impossible. And, you, you know, and, I, and then I see my brother too. I never talk about my brother, but like, like in the context of class, like I realized like that he doesn't suck. You know what I mean? Like I realized that he's actually like really amazing and he helped us survive. Like, so uh, he's, He's the man of the house now. Um, uh, has more authority than my mother because we're Armenian. But um, basically, uh, he's he's the oldest. He's the oldest child. And mm-hmm. after my dad passed away, um, you know, my brother couldn't go to school, and you know, he had to support our family. So he's been working at like he's been working at Verizon Wireless for you know over over ten years, and you know, he's not a manager yet. And, you know, that's it's just, like, depressing to me. And, like, to see me as, like, oh, I could pursue my dreams. I'm I'm going to college. I just graduated. Like, I'm living in San Francisco. Like, you know, those are all, like, hugely privileged things. And, like, here here's my brother, like, still at home living with my mother. Like, uh, you know, like, doesn't have a life anymore. He doesn't have any friends. He doesn't have a partner. Like, you know, not to say that partners define anything, you know, but it's it's just sad. It's that. That's that's all I can say, you know. Yeah, there's nothing funny and or cool about actually being poor. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And also, like, when you grow up being poor, it's like that's not fun either because people make fun of you. Right. You know what I mean? From, like, especially, like, I grew up in, like, a like black and Latinx community, and, like, and they were poor too. But, like, still, it's like if you have, like, what is it, four stripes, four, uh, like, fake Adidas, you know. Oh, you're right. They're going to laugh at you or like, you know, and, and, and it's, it's not even that. It's like that happens when you're that young and then you grow up and then you go to high school. And so when I went to high school, it was like, yeah, predominantly people of color, but there are also white people. And at that point in my life, I really, 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 really wanted to be white. And like, on to, you know, so I tried to merge myself in that community because I was like, yes, like I found my people finally. And there was a huge Armenian population there, but like I you know, did my best to avoid them. So I hung out with these white kids and like, you know, they would bully me um, relentlessly for, you know, uh, not just being queer looking, not just being uh, brown and hairy, but also being poor. Like I couldn't hang out with them because I couldn't like financially afford to, you know what I mean? Right. And, and so we see that like, as I grow up and I go to college and I see these people who are talking about like, you know, uh, self-determination, liberation, and, you know, like, love yourself, and, like, you're accepted, but it's, like, 
you know, it, it, it was interesting, like, my entire life, I've never really had, well, of course, I've had social value, you know, like, I'm light skinned, I'm not black, like, um, I'm American born. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, you know, it's like, it's the sense of value, the social value that you have or that you lack. And in those spaces that were supposedly, like, intended to liberate me and make me feel beautiful and welcome and valid, you know, it, that, that wasn't what happened. It's, it's like I still saw all the same things that I saw growing up, but just in a different way. Mm-hmm. You know, like, if you, if you have money, like, you'll be way cooler. Like, if you could afford this thing that makes you look poor or if you could afford... I don't, I don't really know. My memory is bad, but, like, let's just say, like, a record player or a car to drive to Oakland or, like, you know, or, like, or something that makes you bougie, you know, because it's not, because it's, like, we're romanticizing fake poverty. We are not romanticizing real poverty because it isn't cute. You know what right. I mean? Like, if you're actually hungry, like, not because, like, oh, vegan and, like, dumpster dive because I'm cool. But, like, you know, like, the dirty, you know, the, like, you know, like, uh, the, like, the labor, like, that's, like, you know, it's, like, okay, I work at Walmart. Or, like, you know, the working class struggle, like, is not cute. You know, mm-hmm. like, I pick up trash, you know, like, not, it's, it's not cute when it's uh, not a choice. Exactly. I say that right. Exactly. Yeah. And and thank you so much for saying that. My my last question for you as we wind down the show um, is just kind of like, what would you like for our friends who have not owned up to their class privilege? You know, what would you like for them to take away from this conversation? Mm-hmm. It's just be honest about yourself to other people. You know, that's that's pretty much it. Like, like I I don't understand like um, what kind of game that we're playing or what kind of game identity politics are that people, you know, think people think identity politics are a game and like you could win it or you can lose it. But it's just like, that's not the point of identity politics. The point of identity politics is to define the problem, to, de- to situate ourselves within a broader context and see how we benefit from structures that oppress other people and or oppress us. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And it's essential to define that and then move on from it. You know what I mean? To constantly check that, but not have that be the ultimate goal. Right. Right. Thank you so much, Shakar, for your voice and for the work that you do. And uh, people can check out your your work. Where can they go if they want to read some more? Um, they could check out The Hyphen. Um, that's a magazine that I created actually um, three years ago today. This very day, November 1st, was our, it, it's our third birthday. So... Uh, I'm really proud of this magazine. It's awesome. We have like really awesome, talented, inspiring people who are working in it. Um, all are queer and trans Armenians. Um, well, most are queer and trans Armenians. But um, that's the URL is super weird. It's www.the-hyphen-hyphen-p-h-e-n-hyphen-mag.org. Um, and if you want to check out some of my work, uh, you can go to shakarmachukian.com. Shakar, thank you so much, and congratulations on that third birthday. Woo! And uh, thanks you know, for keeping the voices out there. I think that what that does is just makes it a better place for us all as we become much more sensitive to each other and accepting. And so yes. I'm so happy for you. So thank you. Thank you. All right. Good day. You too. Good luck moving 
See, and that's the voices that we like to carry here on the program. It doesn't always have to be someone that, uh, you know, that uh, is, uh, I guess, featured in The Advocate is what I'm trying to say. There's so many voices out there. And sensitivity and compassion is, is I think, at the backbone of it all. Um, I'm going to bring my nephew into this conversation because, you know, I think classism here in this country is... Um, we, we, we talk about it in these most, I don't want to say fake ways, but in ways in which we disguise what we're actually saying. I think for the most part, um, many people try to be politically correct about it. And the reality is that if you are working, a working class family and or to low income, it is really hard. It is really, it's really hard to grow up. Uh, and it's it's definitely still hard in this country, regardless if you you know think otherwise if you grew up somewhere else. But the experiences here in this country, I mean, you have a government that gives you access to to basic things like food, but it's controlled as to like what kind of food you're able to eat, and that has a lot to do with something like I'm talking about like. You know, it, it, Shakar brought up some of his friends who will try to use an EBT card to prove a point. Well, an EBT card is given to families who actually cannot afford to eat. And the, and there are guidelines. Like, you can't buy certain cereal. You can't buy certain, you know, you can't even, no, you cannot buy almond milk, I think. I don't know. At, at this point, I think it's like Foster Farms, low, you know, whatever. Uh, anyway, I'm going to share some stories of myself growing up poor. I don't know if my nephew knows so much, but I think, you know, right, We our family always talks about how poor it was when they, they immigrated here to the United States. I think your mom talks about that a lot. Yeah, she she does. There's a lot of stories how, how you know, they supported the family. Like, it was hard for them to juggle school and take help you know, mm-hmm. provide for the family as well. Yeah. Do you think your mom actually had to drop out of college in order to work so that she could provide for the family? Um, which, if you think about it, it's that's sad because it should be the other way around where mm-hmm. we should congratulate her for making it to college and then finding ways to support her, you know, and, and help her get through that because the end goal would have been she would have been given the opportunity to to have a job that makes even more money, yeah. right? So it's just so ass backwards, I think is what I want to say. And, and people, some people don't actually understand that. I go back to Stockton and it always saddens me to hear, you know, uh, families uh, actually say things like, well, we're voting for... And, Poor families, working class families, because in Stockton, where I grew up, it's, you know, agriculturally based and there's a lot of big box retailers. So you have people who are making, uh, you know, hourly wage uh, jobs and paid, you know, something around, what, eight to 12 bucks average. What's the minimum wage in Stockton? Uh, I just moved up to 10 in July. Okay, 10. Yeah. So, so imagine that. And then and and that's their lives, but yet somewhere, somehow, the information that they've been given is that they should vote for someone like Donald Trump because the they we need to do something about terrorists. Uh, no, you know, I think that what we need to do is take care of our own people. 
-hmm. that we should stop funneling wrong information to those who don't have access to the education. And it goes back to this conversation that being poor is not, it's not glamorous. You know, it's actually pretty messed up. And, and then you make this, you, it's, it gets you to a place where you can't even make decisions for yourself. Somebody's making the decision for you. So in this case where someone who is of working class would say something like, I'm voting for Trump because we have to do something about ISIS. In my opinion, that person has been brainwashed. That person has been told how to vote. Um, and, and that's not okay with me. That's not freedom. That's not democracy in my opinion. And, uh, you know, the last thing, a few things I want to say about class privilege that goes uh, unnoticed and or not acknowledged in the community is that what what that actually does is it, it creates more problems for people who are actually poor. You know what I mean? Because then it becomes a judgment. Like you're supposed to look a certain way to actually be passing and accepted as poor. But if you if you're anything less than that, say, for example, homeless, then now you're a part of society's problem or you're a drug addict or you're, uh, you know, an alcoholic, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so I don't think that that's right either is all I'm trying to say. How much time do we have left? <laughs> we have three minutes left. So I'm going to wrap up my thoughts here by by pointing out a few things, and that is when you're actually poor, I mean, you have families who are multi-families living in one household. You have a bed that's shared by a few kids. You, uh, you, you work really, really long hours for very little pay that actually goes all to bills. And then the the situation is made worse because what you have access to in terms of like gas or in terms of like uh, where to shop or even, you know, things like banking, for example, all comes associated with fees that keep you poor. So when someone from the tech community says to me, I have an app that is going to allow for those who are unbanked to have access to be able to use their money in a way where there are traditional banking methods. In my opinion, how's that any, that's not, that's not different from what Walmart offers as far as like money orders or check cashing, you know, institutions that take a huge markup just for people to have access to their cash. I think to me, financial education and rehabilitation to get them into places where they can bank traditionally with everyone else is what we're supposed to be doing. But yet we would rather find ways to keep people poor. And I kind of have a problem with that. So address class privilege, acknowledge it. And if you are somebody who's looking to, to, to do something about it and be a part of the revolution, that's the thing. Be a part of the revolution, be a part of the solution, not the problem. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Michelle Meow Show. For everything else, you can head to michellemeow.com. The latest show is posted with documentarian Kirsten Johnson, who has a new film out, and it's called Camera Person, in which she shares 25 years of her work. So make sure you check it out. We'll be back tomorrow at the same time, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time.